I hope that's true for you. I hope that's your testimony. Let's pray again as we look to God's word now in 1 John chapter 5. Father God, we ask now that you would speak to us through your word, accomplish your good purposes in the lives of your people. We pray that you would draw sinners to yourself. Help us to all trust you more as a result of hearing your word. Help us to center our hearts on you, to enthrone you as Lord of our lives. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Maybe you've met someone like this. Uh, I recently heard a pastor friend described this way by his wife. Sometimes wrong, but always confident. Maybe you've met someone like that. Sometimes wrong, but always confident. I think we've also met the opposite, haven't we? Uh, The person who is so indecisive, so unsure, so fearful of they might be wrong that they do nothing. They are paralyzed by indecision. This indecision, there's no confidence. Uh, I think when it comes to the will of God, we as Christians often fall into the latter description, the opposite. We want to please the Lord with our lives. We don't want to be wrong or do wrong, go the wrong way. And so unsure, we are indecisive and we lack confidence, lack confidence even in in serving the Lord. I want to invite you, you can keep a finger here in, in 1 John, but to go back to Deuteronomy. Just for a minute here. Deuteronomy chapter 29. Deuteronomy 29. Verse 29, and we'll be right back for first in first John five, but Deuteronomy 29, 29. I think this is a helpful passage. I was reflecting on it with a friend just a few weeks ago and uh, just reminded of how applicable it is to Christians, but also how helpful it is for understanding our passage. Deuteronomy 29, 29 reads the secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us. And to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. You can continue to glance there or you can turn back to to 1 John. But I think it's helpful for us to think in, in terms of maybe two categories that we see in this passage. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Uh, I remember it because it's Deuteronomy 29, 29. It's easy to remember the reference and then I can look up and remind myself of the verse. And, and the two categories are God's will of decree and God's will of desire. So God's will of decree here, Moses, describes as the secret things, right? The secret things. This is what God has sovereignly decreed will happen. And it includes details in your life and in my life. This is the all-encompassing will of decree, The secret things. But then there's also this second category, which is the will of desire. This is the revealed things. So you have the secret things and the revealed things. And these revealed things are what we find in God's word. This is what we know pleases him because he's told us. This certainly includes his promises, but it also includes his expectations for us. 
This is what he has revealed for us. Where we struggle as Christians is that we think often that there's a third will, the will of direction, and that God has a secret, personal will of direction for you that he's just not telling you. And you, as a Christian, your job is to try to figure it out. To which I want to say, there is not some secret, personal will of direction that God has for you, that he's hiding from you, but if you do the right thing, maybe he'll reveal to you. No, there's a will of decree, and there's a will of desire. And we are to line ourselves up, submitted to his will of decree, pursuing his will of desire, and then doing wise things in accordance with good desires submitted to his revealed will. You notice how the will, the second will here, the, the revealed will is described? It belongs to us so that we might do it, right? We are called to obey what he has revealed, not to find ourselves in kind of paralyzed distress and uncertainty, no confidence because of what he hasn't revealed. No, we are to obey him in line with what he has revealed. And, and then we are to, to serve, to do the next right thing. There is certainly a category for waiting on the Lord and the Lord leading us and guiding us. But he will always do that in, in, in line with wisdom and his word. So if you want to know... Should you buy that or shouldn't you? Should you go there or should you not? Should you change careers, move jobs? Should you go to college? If so, what should you study in college? Those are all good questions that we wrestle with. And I want to put my brothers and sisters at ease and say, choose something that is in line with his revealed will, his will of desire. The, the things here that he talks about that are revealed in scripture And then ask good, wise counsel and then do what you want to do with those desires submitted to him. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The reason why I I went here, and you can go back to 1 John 5, is because our passage is all about confidence. It is all about, as is all of scripture in a technical sense, God's revealed will. And knowing 1 John as a whole, as a letter, is intended by God to give you confidence. To lead you not to indecision, but to decisive obedience. To submit your life, all of your life, to to Him. So John hasn't told Christians that confidence or assurance that they belong to the Lord and what it is to please him is on the other side of obedience so he's not said man if you will obey god then you'll know then you'll really know that you're accepted by god no he said obedience is on the other side of acceptance that is if we know that we have been accepted that we have this assurance in ourselves then we will obey him so the theme that we've seen in first john is obedience from confidence So it isn't surprising that he ends with this note of confidence. And we see it in the word know. K-N-O. 
O-W. See it there in verse 13, that you may know. Verse 15, if we know. Again, verse 15, we know. Down to verse 18, we know. Verse 19, we know. Verse 20, we know that we may know. He wants to leave us with confidence. That's the note of the book, and that's where he wants the note to resound as we conclude this letter. So let's look at five points here this morning. Four that are around this idea of confidence, and then the final warning. Five points this morning. The the points are long, but I'll I'll repeat the part that I think you should write down if you're not going to write about it. As a Christian, God has given us reasons for confidence in life and death. So confidence in life and death. That's our first point. Verse 13. Look at verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that, here's the purpose statement, you may know that you have eternal life. Man, we could do the rest of our time just on this one verse. What a sweet verse. You're a Christian. I hope you know that verse. What a sweet promise. But he's, he's talked like this before, right? I write these things. Would you go back to 1 John chapter 1? 1 John chapter 1 verse 4. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Look down at 2.1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate With the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, he is the propitiation for our sins. And he goes on from there. If you go down to chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, and then down to verse 12. Would you go to chapter 2, verse 12? I am writing to you, little children. Here's the reason. Because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, verse 13 of chapter 2. Because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because... You have overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. Go down to chapter 2 verse 21. I write to you not because you do not know the truth but because you know it. Or chapter 2 verse 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. One of the things that I, I get to do, and I try to use that verb in my own mind. You know, there's certain things that you get to do and you have to remind yourself you get to do them. You don't have to do them. Is uh, write references. So uh, sometimes it's for a, maybe an employer, especially if that employer is a ministry uh, that one of you is going to go with. Or if you're going away to a Christian college They'll often ask for a pastoral reference. And, and I, I get to write a fair number of pastoral references. Sometimes it's a form. You know, they'll send you some link and you click one through five. And it's, but often it'll be write a letter. Some of you have applied for uh, grants or scholarships and you'll ask for a pastoral reference. And I try to, whenever I get to write, I always try to make it really clear. And I, I, I use these words. I am writing to recommend. Because I don't want them to end the letter and be like, well, do they, are they, do, are they, are they, do they like this person? You know, should we accept them? Like, no, if I'm going to write a pastoral recommendation, I want to make it really clear. I do recommend this person. Or if I don't, I would make it clear that that doesn't usually happen. John doesn't want us to wonder why he wrote. 
He doesn't want us to leave First John and be like, well, I'm not sure what that letter was about. He told us. And in case we didn't catch it, when he told us again and again in chapter 1 and chapter 2, he concludes even bolder, chapter 5, verse 13. This is why I am writing. And of course, John has done this before. Listen to how John talks about the purpose for writing his gospel. So this is the fourth book in the New Testament, the gospel of John. Another purpose statement. This is what John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, wrote there. He said, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John's gospel is evangelistic in purpose. John's letter is reassuring in purpose. Both talk about belief. Both talk about eternal life. But one is written so that you might believe, and the other is written so that you might know that you believe and have eternal life. I write these things, and of course, these things are the whole of the letter. And in so doing, God has given you confidence, reason after reason after reason, to be confident that you have eternal life. So you should live And as a Christian, you should die with confidence. Are you living with that confidence as a Christian? Confidence that he intends for you to have. In the face of family or friends, acquaintances, who have maybe left the faith, reject Christ. Are you living with this confidence? In the face of your own struggle with sin, talked about this in chapter one we'll talk about it again in a minute are you despairing or are you trusting do you have this confidence do you believe that that god intends for christians to live with confidence assurance i think that's true and this confidence provides comfort comfort i was reminded uh several years ago now i think about three and a half years ago um, while well, I was uh, with some of you on a mission trip in, in Chile visiting one of our missionaries, I got word that my dad had passed away. It wasn't a surprise. He had been battling cancer, uh, but he, he had passed away. And uh, my dad had asked me if I wanted to uh, officiate the service for him, and I said, no, thank you. I just didn't know if I'd be able to. But I did agree to do, to do the, the graveside uh, service. And, and out in New England, they, at least in our church, we do things a little bit differently. So we had the graveside service with about 20 people first. And then the next day, we did the memorial service with the whole church um, on, a, on a Sunday night as one of the gatherings. And, and at that graveside service, uh, I just shared a meditation from, from some of the truths we're talking about right now, which is... Confidence actually leads to comfort. Confidence actually leads to comfort. So being assured, knowing that you belong to God, leads to comfort. You have it there in your bulletin, but one of the questions that an old catechism called the Heidelberg Catechism asks is, what is your only comfort in life and death? This is the the answer. That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, 
but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied all my sins and delivered me from the power of the devil and so preserves me. And he goes on from there. So do you see, the question is, what is the believer's comfort? The answer is confidence. Confidence that you belong to another. That you are not your own. That you have eternal life. We'll come back to this in, in a moment. Or point number two. As a Christian, God has given you reason to be confident in prayer. So point number two, confident in prayer. This is seen in verses 14 and 15 and then illustrated in verses 16 and 17. Notice back in 1 John 5, 14 and 15, there's a couple, couple if-then statements. And there, there's a progression here. Let me reread verses 14 to 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. So if we ask in accordance with his will, this is talking about prayer and bringing our requests to the Lord. Then he hears us, and if he hears us, we we have the request. Or simply put, if we ask in accordance with his will, he will answer us. Did you notice the language of confidence, right? Verse 14, we have this confidence. Verse 15, we know, we know. As Christians, we have reason to be confident in our prayers. God is our Father Jesus taught that he loves to give good gifts to his children. We're to pray in submission to his greater wisdom, the secret things, what he has decreed. And we know from experience that we don't always receive what we ask for, even when it is in accordance with his revealed will, like the salvation of a loved one. But... This doesn't say what we maybe at times want it to say. And that's a good thing. God doesn't give us what we want to have. God gives us what he wants us to have. Which would you choose? Hmm. Which would you choose? That's right. That's right. We choose what he wants. And so he says, okay, there's also a, a freedom, though, here, isn't there? If we Look again at verse 14. If we ask anything, clear instruction, through his revealed will, we know what he wants. But if we ask anything of him within that, verse 15, he hears us in whatever we ask. So the point isn't, and, and I, I trust you know that we're to, we can ask silly things. Like, I would love a truck, you know? I'm going to ask it, and if I ask with confidence, right, surely he'll give me a truck. No, that's not what he's talking about. He is saying, though, that we're free to ask for any good thing, including a truck. Any event, any outcome that, that seems to be in accordance with his desires, so we can pray about that relationship. We can pray about that struggle, that coworker. We can pray about that, that ticket we can't afford, but we long so we could go visit. 
We pray. We pray about all of those things, submitting our desires to him. We ask. We're free to implore, to, to ask. Not my will, but yours be done. No hesitation, complete confidence that the Father longs and loves to give good gifts. I don't always know what is best. But I know he won't give it to me unless it is. So I ask, I plead, I implore, I persist. I continue to ask. Maybe it would be fruitful for you to spend some time, even this afternoon, reading the first part of Luke 18. It's the parable of the persistent widow. Some of you know that. What a powerful example she is. Persistent prayer is confident prayer. Not confident that we know his will of decree, but he's revealed his will of desire so that we might do it and we might pray in line with, in line with it. So we persist because it's his will we want. That's why we're talking to him. That's why we're asking him. Not our will, but yours be done. And then he gives an illustration. Verses 16 and 17. If you were reading this passage in preparation for today, you probably have some questions about verses 16 and 17. I know that he's still talking about the same subject because, because of the words. Look at verse 16. He shall ask, or the end of verse 16... One should pray. So he's still talking about prayer, which is clearly the the topic in verses 14 and 15. And now as he moves to verses 16 and 17, I think he's giving something of an, an illustration. Verse 16 begins, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death. Well, what is a sin not leading to death? I think this is a sin that you and I commit as believers, as Christians. So this is in contrast to the persistent sin or the unrepentant or ongoing sin of one who is not a believer. Verse 16, it says, it's a brother, that is a Christian who's committing this sin. So this is the sin by a believer and thus a sin that doesn't lead to to death. Here, eternal separation. This is a, a sin for which forgiveness has been sought, 1 John 1, 9, and given. So Christians sin as forgiven sinners, and Christians pursue this relational wholeness, intimacy with God, through confessing our sin, owning our sin, being honest before God as Christians with our sin. So God will give life. Here, I think, a reference to eternal life in light of what we see up in verse 13 and verse 20. Let's keep reading verse 16. He shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray about that. Well, what is the sin that leads to death? Well, I think this is this kind of persistent sin. The sin of those that he's concerned about who have gone out from because they're not of I think more particular, this is ongoing rejection of the doctrine of Christ, who he is. This is ongoing disobedience, disregard for God's law. This is ongoing failure to love believers. This demonstrates a lack of faith. It demonstrates unbelief. And unbelief always leads to death. 
So what would be the takeaway then from verse 16 in particular, verse 17 as well? I think if you read verse 16, it would be this. When you see a brother or sister in Christ sin, you, I, we should pray for them to be restored. So we see someone in sin. We don't rush to assume the worst. We don't rush to gossip. We rush to pray. We pray for them. If you see a believer sinning, if you see a wayward Christian, you ask and God will give him life. That is because you ask in accordance with his will, God will bring that believer to repentance because that's what believers do. They repent. Third point. As a Christian, God has given you reason to be confident in Christ even when you sin. Point number three, confidence in Christ even or especially when you sin. Look at verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. I think we've got to ask and answer one particular question and then we'll see the glories of this verse. This is an amazing verse. Who is He who was born of God in the second line of verse 18. Well, this is somewhat debated, but I think it's clear. Whoever he is, he is said to protect the one who has been born of God. So this one who has been born of God protects believers who have been born of God. So I think this is a reference to Jesus. Incarnation sent by God, the eternal son of God, conceived by the Holy Spirit. He protects believers so that the evil one does not touch them, does not cause them permanent spiritual loss. Look at verse 19. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. I think John here is reflecting, meditating on Jesus's words in John 17. Listen to how Jesus prays for his disciples in John 17. While I was with them, I kept them in your name. Which you have given me. I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost. Except the son of destruction. That the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you. Jesus prays. And these things I speak in the world. That they may, uh, that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you would take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. Do you see the same themes? Keep from the evil one. Christ guarding those, protecting, as we see here in 5.18. Here he's echoing the truth we saw back in chapter 3. Maybe you'll turn back to chapter 3, verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Or 3.9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. So we as Christians have been given reason for confidence before God. Even when we sin. Doesn't it often work the opposite way? Right? And John says no. Believers sin. But we shouldn't. But when we do, we don't despair. Remember, we talked about this back at the end of chapter 1, beginning of chapter 2. 
believers sin, but we don't continue in persistent, unrepentant sin. That's John's point in John 3, 1 John 3. So we're here at the end of the letter, and John wants to remind us that we can have confidence even in the face of our sin. I think that's why he mentions back in verse 17, all wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. John wants us to know the seriousness of all sin. And yet the sin of a believer is here described as sin that does not lead to death. And here's the wonder of the gospel in this. It should. The wages of sin is death. Your sin and my sin did in fact lead to death, didn't it? But it wasn't ours, it was Christ's. The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, the one who died in our place for our sins. So brothers and sisters, live with confidence in Christ, especially when you sin. Remember how chapter 2 begins. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All wrongdoing in your life is sin. But if we confess, God will forgive, God will cleanse, and our Father will draw us back to himself. So we live with confidence in Christ, especially when we sin as believers. Point number four, verse 20. As a Christian, God has given you reason for confidence in the truth. So we live out of this God-given confidence in him, that we know him. Let's read 520 again. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, referring to the Father. And we are in him who is true, the Father still, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He, closest reference is Jesus Christ, is the true God and eternal life. This tells us that God has given gifts and the most precious of his gifts is the gift of his son who came in the incarnation and the gift of understanding, that is, the grace to grasp truth, biblical truth. And the purpose of understanding biblical truth is not pride. It's so that we might know him. Do you know him? Not about him. Do you know him? Relationship. Do you know him? If all one had was the content of your prayers and the words that you read from him this past week, would, would anyone deduce that you have a relationship with him? Do you know him? Do you talk with him? Do you hear from him? Do you know him? What a privilege the gospel brings. What a confidence we can have in the truth because it says he is the truth. We know him. We have access to him. We, we know the truth. We have access to the truth. To know God is to know the truth. Because God is true. And he, Christ, is the true God. Eternal life. So you 
grasp the Bible and you know God and so know the truth. And this is all a gift and only through Jesus who came and gave this to his people. So when people challenge the claims of Christianity, we respond from a posture of confidence. We engage them in love. We try to defend the truth. We make clear arguments. But the posture is one of confidence. Point number five, as we conclude from verse 21, a warning. We've been given reason to be confident in life and in death and prayer, in Christ even when we sin and in the truth. But here's now the warning. Keep yourself from idols. Point number five, keep yourself from idols. What? He hasn't talked about idols the whole letter. Just one last thing. It's like you're heading out the door. Oh, and keep yourself from idols. What is going on here? Well, I think the question we were to ask ourselves is, okay, let's first feel the exhortation and then put it in the context of the letter as we conclude. And the exhortation is this. Who is enthroned in my heart? Who is enthroned in my heart? What rules my affections, my desires? Is it, is it Christ or is it another? So to keep yourself from idols is, is to live with a whole life, a wholehearted faith in Jesus. So we want to discern our hearts. We want to discern what we might be making an idol, what, what might be controlling us, what might be enthroned in our hearts functionally. There's wisdom in knowing ourselves and keeping ourselves from those things, guarding ourselves in this way. And for each of us, it's going to be different. We struggle with different idols. Again, not little statues, but something that we give ultimate worth in our life. We are capable of making almost anything and often really good things into idols. It could be phones or friends, both good. Family. Food, all good things. The list is endless of things that we can allow to control us. It's good to identify those things and our temptations to those things. It might seem like the exhortation to keep yourself from them, though, is impossible. My heart, as Calvin first said, is an idol factory, right? It's not that I'm making little figurines. It's that I can turn anything into an idol. I can turn this church into an idol. I can turn your affection into an idol. I can turn your attention into an idol. You just go down the line, right? Same with you. So how in the world do we keep ourselves from idols when our heart makes them so easily and anything could become one? What am I to do? Two final points here as we tie the letter together and try to apply this final warning. The first is this, fight on the level of desire first. Fight desires that are out of order. So let's take money as an example. Scripture says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So the love for money is the root of all kinds of evil. This love, let's say, could lead you to pride... And then another to depression. It could lead to envy. 
or self-confidence, and we could go on, right? Of course, money isn't the issue. The desires of the heart are. So keep yourself not from money, but from trusting in money. From desiring it sinfully, loving it, following after it. So fight on the level desire before, during, and after keeping yourself from it. Again, if you say, man, if I'm tempted to trust in money, I guess I have to avoid money the rest of my life. Well, good luck. Right? This is not, that's not what he means. It's not what he means. So we shouldn't hear this and run first to an avoidance ethic. Look at all the things I don't do. No, we want to fight on the level of desire. And then there's some things that you probably wisely shouldn't do. But secondly, and this is really the heart of the matter. And we talked about this back in chapter 2. And I want to end on, on this important note as we conclude this letter. Remember that the best way to keep yourself from idols is to live with a whole heart of faith in Jesus. Worship Christ supremely and you won't enthrone other saviors. Remember Thomas Chalmer? We read him, a quote from him uh, months ago. Let me remind you. He said, we know of no better way by which to keep the love of the world out of our hearts than to keep our, in our hearts the love of God. Friends, you were made to worship. You are a worshiper. That's how God made you. And the best way to make sure you're not worshiping someone else in the place of Christ is to worship Christ. Enthrone him as Lord of your life. If you go around chasing the idols of the heart to remove them one by one, and there is wisdom in that, but if you do that first and you do that only, you will, your heart will fill that void with another idol, another thing, another object. And if that isn't Christ, it's idolatry still. Have you found this to be true in your life? I have at times. You chase one sin and you find three more follow right in its place. I think it's great to oust sin from our lives. Don't get me wrong. But may we begin by enthroning Christ first. This is what Chalmers called the expulsive power of a new affection. Again, you will worship something or someone. Worship Christ supremely. Worship Christ alone. So how can he mention idolatry here at the end? Well, it's because the whole letter is about how to keep yourself holy, living for him. Ongoing, confident, wholehearted faith in the true Christ. You can't keep your heart without an object of worship. You will give ultimate worth to something. Your heart will cling to someone or something. So cultivate worship for Christ. It's a means to keep yourself from idols. Keep your affection for him red hot. Keep your love for Christ vibrant. And you will keep yourself from idols. Friends, let's not miss the confidence that God wants to have us to have in this life. And then let's seek 
to live out of that confidence lives of faith in the true Christ, obedience to his good commands, and love for one another. Let's pray. Father God, may we each ask ourselves, since this is who we are, as your children, how will we then live? There are many commands and exhortations in this book, but all flow from us knowing that we have a saving relationship, that we've been forgiven, that we have eternal life. And so I thank you that you come to us as your children tenderly, and you call us beloved and dear children, and you exhort us to enthrone Christ, to trust in him, to look to him. Father God, we pray that you would strengthen us to do this. Father God, I pray for those who are outside of Christ here this morning, who are not trusting in Christ, whose lives are not marked by faith, or obedience, or love, but rather idolatry and the chasing of satisfaction in anything, in anyone but you. Father, would you woo them, draw them, convict them, save them? Would they bow the knee and cry out to you? Would they trust in you alone that you might be their king? We pray all this in Jesus' name. If you're like me on a Sunday afternoon, it's easy to uh, move on 